everyone, welcome back to another podcast episode. Today we're talking about conflict resolution and especially conflict resolution in brown families. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. My name is Nikita and on this podcast, we chat about just experiences that are unique to brown folks and really just what it looks like to navigate life while being brown. Um, This is season two and today I'll be talking about conflict resolution, like I said, so let's get into that. Now, conflict resolution is very much like an umbrella term (laughs) that we're talking about here. Um, And there are certainly exceptions to the rule, but we're going to be talking about conflict resolution in brown families and South Asian families and cultures in a general sense. Um, And I'm going to be sharing some questions, just some things to think about to help you reflect a little bit more deeply on your conflict resolution style. And we're also going to be talking about four things that you should not do in a conflict. I mean, in general, in communication, but also in conflict. So let's actually define it. What is good conflict resolution? We experience conflict at work with coworkers, and you know, sometimes you go through these trainings on how to resolve conflict and whatnot. But if you think about it, like most things, we learn conflict resolution initially from our families, our families of origins, our cultures. We grow up learning by modeling and how conflict was resolved or not resolved in our families of origin. And that really creates this like template for this skill. Like anything else, conflict resolution and communication is a skill that needs to be honed. It's not just something that comes to us. So when I talk about good conflict resolution, I'm thinking about um, having respect for one another in the conflict, having openness for the perspective of the other person, um, and collaboration and teamwork over competition, you know, for our needs. So with respect. I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory, but sometimes in conflicts, I have noticed that that you start attacking the other person, right? We start attacking or we feel attacked and criticized. And there's just a lot of um, perhaps like awful language, some guilt tripping. So there's no respect there for the other person. And also there's no openness usually for the other person. When I think about conflict resolution in a lot of South Asian families, I'm thinking about the family dynamics between the parents and the kids. And, you know, the idea sometimes of conflict resolution is like the parents saying, well, this is just it. It's like my way or the highway, you know, Um, as long as you're going to live under my roof, this is what you're going to do. And you can do whatever you want after you get married. That sort of um, narrative is certainly there, especially with, with women. There's this narrative of, well, you can do whatever you want after you get married and their conflict was resolved, but it's not really resolved for the other person. Um, and there's no collaboration. So it's very much like this like tug of war that no, what I'm saying is more important. And then nothing happens because both the parties or all the parties are coming at it from a place of competition and you know, who can yell louder and who can be firmer in, in their perspective. Um, but that doesn't leave room for problem solving, right? It just becomes like a, like a shouting match in a sense. Um, so those are some basic things that I think about with conflict resolution. Basic, yes, but still very, very important. This is perhaps a good place to reflect on those of you listening, you know, what, what is your conflict resolution style? 
uh, is it more of like a passive you know let me just not share what's on my mind or you know are you very like gung-ho and very outspoken um, do you actually get to resolve conflict in your relationships maybe not all relationships but are there some relationships and was this a skill that you had to learn or was it very nicely modeled for you um, what does that look like you know are you is your family the one that brushes things under the rug or do you sit down and have family meetings where everyone's perspective is heard or you know like one parent is calling one of the kids and like venting to them like what what is the dynamic like and you know obviously not in every family is the dynamic safe enough of course like emotionally safe or even physically safe to have healthy conflict resolution so we're certainly keeping those exceptions in mind as well but this is a good place to reflect on where did you learn conflict resolution? Um, how is it done in your family? Were conflicts actually resolved or just like buried under the rug or you just had to be, you had just had to make your peace with whatever parents said was going to go. And has that even evolved over time? You know, obviously nothing stays the same. And I think about how in Desi families too, there can be this evolution sometimes, I mean, for the better and sometimes, unfortunately, for the worse. But there can be a uh, an evolution of communication and conflict resolution or just the re evolution emotionally within relationships. So these are some, of course, you know, not so simple questions, but that's helpful to reflect on when we talk about conflict resolution. Because before we talk about what we should do differently, we got to talk about what is it that we currently do? Where did we learn to do this, right? And then where does it come from? I mean, even with some of the other examples, I think about watching certain like Bollywood movies growing up and there's just no, <laughs> I mean, of course it's a movie, so we can't hold it to a really high standard, but there's just no like resolution to conflict. Like it's just, you know, a conflict happens and then they just get over it magically by the end you know it's very convenient or if you think about like Indi indian tv serials conflict like goes on for like generations right at some point you don't even know what it is that you're fighting about but it's just the conflict has been going on for like 20 seasons so i mean it sounds funny but then you think about it these are spaces that are available to us and we are absorbing messages from everywhere right and unless we think critically about what it is that we're absorbing and where is it coming from it's it's going to plant itself right so i think about some of these examples too so not just within our families of origin but also like larger cultural themes when it comes to conflict resolution you know how is conflict resolved in your extended families because where they see there is extended family drama right that's a given like either it's like a issue with the in-laws or somebody's sister-in-law said something to somebody like there is always drama unfortunately in these families and you know how are how are these resolved were they ever resolved or do you still hear your parents cribbing about how so and so treated them 20 years ago so that's certainly one of the ways that conflict exists in desi families and I also think about, you know, within the immediate, so nuclear family, so parents and the kids, conflict resolution also looks like values clashing, right? So it doesn't have to be like huge, huge conflicts. It can even just be 
parents imposing their values on kids. And I mean, I mean, that is sometimes a huge point of contention for people, but parents imposing perhaps their cultural values, their religious values on kids without, again, having a conversation or a collaboration on this, right? So it's just like, well, this is how things are done. So this is how you're also going to do them. And that becomes like a dictatorship. It's not really a democracy. And I mean, some parents will say, well, it should be a dictatorship and that's on them. But I wonder, right, if you're going to get better results, if your family environment is more of a democracy, like obviously within reason. So one of the things that I think about, especially where values clash with Desi parents, is this whole idea of immigrant time warp. This is a term that was coined by TK Park um, on their podcast, Ask a Korean. So they do identify as Asian and it's a really interesting term. And I mean, I have always talked about this concept. I just didn't know a term for it existed. So it's very cool. Somebody put a name to it. But immigrant time warp basically refers to this idea that folks sometimes get stuck in the time and the values of the time in which they immigrated from their home country. So, you know, maybe you've had this conversation or you've heard somebody else say it, you know, how some folks just feel a little bit more traditional and backwards compared to people back home, right? So you will say things like, you will hear things like, well, nobody even does things this way in India and Pakistan and whatever, but the this family in Canada does things this way so traditional so backwards well is that really backwards or is that an immigrant time warp where these folks are in a sense stuck in the values of the time in which they immigrated so if somebody immigrated um they left their home country in say the 60s or the 70s they are likely to bring back values from obviously that time but also hold on to them right because now the back home environment socially has evolved but these folks haven't because they are still hanging on to those values that's a comfort thing perhaps right that helps them have a sense of control that's part of their cultural identity and so because they've been isolated from their culture they really haven't had the opportunity to experience that growth and that evolution they are still stuck in that time of how things were done back then so essentially you preserve the values of the time you left of course, this is, you know, not a blanket statement. Um, there's a lot of people that are capable of evolution and critical thinking and you grow with the times. But a lot of people and a lot of families don't. And there's a lot of really, really rigid expectations on people. And so immigrant time warp describes how you preserve the cultural values of the time that you left your country of origin. TK Park talks about like, talks about it like a time capsule, right? So it's like a time capsule. You bury it in the ground with mementos from this year and then you open it 20 years from now and those mementos are still there. It's like frozen in time. And sometimes these cultural values can also get frozen in time and it feels like some people are like living in a totally different time culturally. Like a lot of the things just don't make sense in this day and age. And that's where I notice so much of the clash happening for people in families, you know, where parents will say, well, you know, whatever, when I was growing up, this is how it was done. So this is how you're also going to do it. This is how it's going to continue to be done. But it just doesn't make sense because people back home don't even do it that way anymore. 
some other examples where conflicts happen, you know, with parenting, between preferences, personalities, and conflict is normal, right? Like conflict can be a very healthy thing. It's very normal. But when we don't learn healthy conflict resolution in our families of origin, or it's resolved in a very unhealthy way, as adults, we become very conflict avoidant, or we become people pleasers, or we become very like rigid and almost like aggressive, right? Or maybe we're always picking fights, or we're too like rigid in how we are, very inflexible. But most times I notice this looks like people pleasing. This looks like silently suffering not sharing your needs because every time you shared your needs as a kid there was huge conflict in the home right there was conflict not collaboration and so now it just doesn't feel safe to ask for what you want or even know what you want so you go with the flow this is where conflict resolution becomes so important so now let's talk about four things that you shouldn't do during a conflict okay I'm going to be pulling research and information from actually the field of couples therapy. Uh, so we have what we call four horsemen of the apocalypse in couples therapy. So maybe those of us who are from a Christian or Catholic faith, you may recognize this terminology. It's like the four horsemen of the apocalypse, like four things, I believe, that would happen before the apocalypse happened. But in couples therapy... Um, we're referring to the apocalypse of the relationship. So four things that you should not do if you want to avoid an apocalyptic end to your relationship, essentially. This is from the research of the Gottman Institute, um, world-renowned couples therapists, John and Julie Gottman. They're also a married couple. And they have really just done wonders for the world of couples therapy. And what I like about these tips is that they're really applicable, right, to mostly all relationships, especially these four apocalypse, these four horsemen that we're going to talk about. Okay, these four things that you should not do in a conflict are criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. I'll go through each of these, uh, but criticism, let's start with that because that is very like obvious, you know, it's basically this idea that you should not be criticizing the person across from you, right? Especially when you're in a conflict. This is how conflicts escalate. This is how they get heightened. And criticism often, you know, happens to the best of us, but it also looks like you never do this or you always do this. Now, criticism is different from voicing a complaint. A complaint can sound like, hey, I noticed that you've been running late lately, right? What's, what's going on, right? That can be a complaint. That's a little bit more gentle. Criticism sounds like, hey, you're always late, you're never on time, so the always and the never, and you know, I can't do this anymore. This is really frustrating for me. So that's criticism. I mean, you may be speaking facts that that person is late all the time, but this is where the communication nuances come in, right? So how are you gonna either escalate or de-escalate the conversation? Because when we say something like, you are always late, you are never on time, what is wrong with you? Um, you don't think about how your behavior affects other people. You are not just providing like objective view of their behavior, you are now attacking the character of the person. And that is criticism. And anytime, if you think about the times when you have experienced criticism, I know if I think about the times I have, anytime, 
I experience criticism, I just like shut down or like a wall comes up, right? Criticism kills conversation completely. And so that's one of the things that, you know, research tells us that you should not be doing. Very obvious, but it's very hard to apply in moments when you're just really frustrated with that family member um, and you just want to, you know, give it to them. Second is contempt. Now, this is a little bit more interesting. Contempt is really quite damaging to relationships. I mean, in the field of couples therapy, Gottmans have found that they can predict divorce rate in couples depending on how much um, or they can predict the likelihood of a couple getting divorced depending on how much contempt there is in the relationship. So let me define contempt here. Contempt is like disrespect, but very like judgmental and like laced with shame and mockery. So for example, you know, you're talking to someone or whatever, you're arguing with them and then you like roll your eyes at them. That's contempt. You are ridiculing them, you're calling them names, um, you're scoffing, there's the eye roll. Because the message we're sending then to the person is that you're stupid, right? And what you have to say doesn't matter. And that's contemptuous. That is very, very damaging in relationships because it goes beyond criticism. You are now, when you use contempt, you are now saying that you are morally superior than the other person. And you know, like, what do they know? They're stupid. And again, this, like criticism, really attacks a person's character and can be very, very demeaning and can have the other person feel like really, really ashamed. The Gottmans also talk about how contempt is really fueled by long-standing negative thoughts about the other person or like negative perception about the other person. So, you know, if like there's that one person in your family that really pisses you off, you are much more likely to show contempt to them if you find yourself in an argument because you've been harboring all these negative feelings about them and contempt is single-handedly the most damaging thing that you can do. So contempt is when we use our body language or our words to make the other person feel worthless or, you know, just makes them feel really despised. And contempt often, you know, criticism is more communicated, I think, with words. Contempt is often more communicated with body language, like the, the eye rolling and the turning away from the person. And if you've ever experienced that in an argument, you know that does not bode well, right? For the conflict here. That's not gonna help resolve the conflict. The third thing that you shouldn't do is defensiveness. Now, defensiveness is interesting because it's typically a response to criticism, right? If I think about times when I've been criticized, you know, somebody says to me, Nikita, what the hell, you're always late. My initial response is like defensiveness because I feel like I'm being attacked. So I'll automatically go into, no, but I'm so busy. I have so much going on. You don't understand. And you can see how that would go. Because when we feel like we're being accused or unjustly being accused, we find excuses. We play the victim. Um, so the other person's going to back off and we don't really take any responsibility. Like we don't take any accountability or ownership. And that's where you can see that the criticism and the defensiveness, they kind of like, feed off of each other, right? It's like a dance. Sometimes, you know, defensiveness can also just be there without the criticism. So I may ask a family member a question that, hey, did you get to do this, right? Did you get to call the doctor today? Like you said you would. And the, the response I hear back can sound like, well, you know, like I'm just so busy. 
um, you know how busy my schedule is. Why didn't you do it? Or why didn't you remind me to do it? And that defensiveness is again, like the other person is not taking accountability for what's going on, right? They can say something like, you know, I forgot, shoot. Okay, um, can you help me set a reminder for it? But often I think that when we're feeling really overwhelmed or swamped, we tend to go a little bit more into the defensiveness piece. But now if we are being defensive, the other person is gonna think we're just making excuses, we don't care about this, and then that's gonna follow up perhaps with more criticism, or they may just like turn away and this conflict doesn't really get resolved. And the last horseman of the apocalypse, my personal favorite, is stonewalling. So stonewalling is, I know it may be a new term for, for a lot of you listening, but basically, Stonewalling happens when you're in an argument or you're in communication and somebody just completely shuts down. Okay, so you can see that they might like walk away. They'd be like, I can't have this conversation anymore. I don't want to do this. And they walk away. Or you can tell in their face that they've like totally shut down. Like they're just like not responding to you, right? I think about like a, like a surly teenager, right? So when I was a teenager and when I was getting lectures from my mom, Sometimes I would just, you know, like just sit there like with a totally blank face, not letting her see what was happening, um, not giving her a response, not making eye contact, just like zoning out. It's a message you're sending. You're really ignoring the other person. So you tune out, you start acting busy, right? It can look like maybe like a partner making a complaint of the other partner. And that partner just like doesn't respond and they just go back to like whatever doing stuff in the kitchen that's a form of stonewalling right and that again as you can imagine shuts down a conversation stonewalling isn't usually the first response for people so when there has been say a lot of criticism in the relationship when there has been a lot of contempt a lot of defensiveness stonewalling is something that happens as a result over time and that is very indicative of how the person is feeling so if i'm stonewalling that should tell you that i'm actually just like really overwhelmed right now and this is the only way for me to engage in this conversation is just by tuning out or by disengaging but it can become like a bad habit over time because think about it the last time somebody gave you silent treatment how did that make you feel probably not very good there was probably a lot of hurt a lot of anger um a lot of frustration maybe some anxiety about the relationship and then they eventually came around because people who stonewall they're like so emotionally overwhelmed and then eventually they like whether it takes them like half an hour or two days like they come down and then things go back to normal but if you've been stonewalled you know that now that makes it that much harder for you to have a conversation with the other person i know it certainly does for me now i'm scared okay this person's gonna stonewall me again do i really want to ha have this conversation do i really want to talk about this conflict okay no it doesn't matter let me brush it under the rug Right, so it kills healthy communication and conflict resolution. So those are the four horsemen. Criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. Um, this is a good place to also check in and be curious about, okay, where, what has been more of like the common practice, you know, for you? What have you experienced more of? And what stance do you take more? Are you a criticizer? Are you contemptuous? Do you get very defensive? 
Are you a stonewaller that someone is talking to you and they're expressing a complaint and you're just like, you turn away and you start chopping vegetables, right? Like, which one are you? I know for me, uh, my struggle has been to not be a criticizer. And unfortunately, the antidote to criticism is like a gentle startup, right? So obviously it doesn't help to criticize anybody and say, you know, when you do this or you always do this, you know, you never come on time, you're always late. The alternative to that is a gentle startup, right? That can sound like like an I statement. So for example, instead of saying you're always like never on time, a gentle startup can be like, hey, I've noticed that uh, you've been running a little bit late the last few times. Um, I feel, you know, concerned about that. What's going on, right? You're expressing curiosity and you are sharing the impact of the other person's behavior on you but you are not attacking them. Similarly, you know, with contempt, when you roll your eyes at someone, when they're arguing with you, or there's just this like sense of superiority, it's important that you have some appreciation in your relationship. And then I think about in brown families, right? Do we have a lot of appreciation in our relationships? Um, I know like certainly in, in our hearts for sure, but Do parents openly appreciate their kids? Do kids openly appreciate each other or their parents? That culture of appreciation is so important for healthy conflict resolution. Because in the absence of that, there's always going to be judgment and contempt. If you're the kind of person who easily goes into defensiveness, because again, that was something that personally really used to be my issue too. I would always descend into defensiveness. Um, It can be helpful to take responsibility, right? That like healthy accountability. That you know what, you're right. Um, I I totally forgot to call the doctor. You know, I'm, I'm gonna set a reminder for it for tomorrow. Take ownership for what's yours, right? Instead of responding with defensiveness when someone asks you, hey, you didn't call the doctor, what happened? And you say, well, I'm so busy and you know how busy I am and blah, 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 blah. And then if you're noticing stonewalling, that's a bit more of a complex one. But stonewalling is, like I said, when we withdraw, right? And we communicate distance, we communicate disapproval, we communicate separation. So the opposite of that really is self-soothing and connection. Because if a conversation has become so overwhelming for you and you just need to withdraw from it, that's fine. Everybody needs a break. But can there be communication? You know, can we say, hey, I really don't have the capacity to talk about this right now. Can we come back to it in a couple hours or tomorrow? This is something that's very, very hard to employ. And I have employed it in a few relationships. And I will say it is possible in some relationships. And I don't know how much in others, but it has been helpful for me. You know, if I don't have the capacity for something to say, you know what? Hey, like, I hear you, but... I don't have the mental energy for this right now. Um, Can we come back to this? So now you're making the commitment to coming back too, right? So the other person knows that, okay, we are going to resolve this. And you're then going to come back and you're going to show up in a way that is more conducive to a resolution. So that was it. That's my bit on conflict resolution in Desi families, what not to do uh, during conflict. And what to try instead. And I mean, of course, this is, these all sound very simplistic when we talk about them like this, but they can be a little bit more complex. I will certainly share the link 
to uh, an article in the show notes. Uh, so definitely check that out if you want to learn a little bit more about this Gottman approach. But, but hopefully some of what we talked about today like resonates with you because conflict resolution, like everything else, really is a skill. And some of us, we just don't have the privilege of learning this in our homes. And so as adults, we have a very hard time maneuvering social situations, whether it's at work or whether it's in like your just friendships and general relationships. So conflict resolution is really, really important. Let me know if what, what conflict, you know, uh, resolution looks like in your life. You know, have you worked hard on it? And, you know, are you are you good at conflict resolution now? Or is it something that's still a skill that you're developing? Thank you so much for joining me for this episode today. Hope you took something of value away from it. If you're watching on YouTube, feel free to subscribe and give this a thumbs up and stay tuned for our disclaimer. And I'll see you in next week's episode. Thanks, everyone. The guest and the host at Brown People Problems do not offer individualized therapeutic or medical advice, and our conversations should not be interpreted as such. This podcast is not a replacement for therapy. This podcast exists for educational purposes only. Please consider your circumstances and engage with the content mindfully.